0: Hello and welcome to the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month I'm talking with Derek Lieben on his new book, Ethics for Robots, How to Design a Moral Algorithm. We talk about general frameworks for machine ethics, Rawls's original position thought experiment, Minimax or Maximin functions approach to machine ethics, and should robots respect consent of people in life-threatening circumstances Derek and I really dig into the specifics of machine ethics in this podcast and how we could create machines that have some sort of moral thinking, so I hope you enjoy. If you'd like to get in contact, then go to the machine-ethics.net. You can follow us on Twitter, machine You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. I'm also currently touring with creating new content, such as video explainers to AI concepts, video monthly thoughts reading list, and cartoons to satirize current AI trends. Let me know what you think and enjoy. Derek, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Um, If you'd like to quickly introduce yourself, that'd be great.
1: Sure, I am a professor of philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown. I have been teaching there for about seven years now, and I started out working on ethics and moral psychology And for the last few years, I have gradually transitioned into the application of ethics and moral psychology to computer science and robotics.
0: Awesome. And um, you mentioned to me that you were writing a book, which is, I believe, out now, which is the Ethics for Robots, How to Design a Moral Algorithm. Is that right?
1: That's right. It just came out a couple weeks ago. It is available on the Routledge website and Amazon.com.
0: Yeah, awesome. So that is a, I mean, in my personal opinion, that's quite a bold title. <laughs> um, <laughs> you've nailed it. So, do you have like the secret source that um, obviously we we'll, can go out and buy the book and, and check out what you have in there? But. It, it, what, what can you tell us about the general um, broad strokes about your arguments within that?
1: Sure. Well, the first thing I might say about it is that I've been gradually recognizing a difference in the field between ethics for machines and ethics of machines. And I know on your podcast, you've had a lot of conversations about both. Mm. Um, usually, I distinguish the ethics of technology as having to do with the permissibility of our behavior. How we act, what kinds of machines it's acceptable for us to make and not acceptable. Um, and so I've heard a lot of conversations you've had your, with your guests about um, invasion of privacy issues, mm-hmm. um, issues having to do with uh, human robot relationships, and so on. Uh, so that all falls into the category of how it's acceptable for us to behave in relation to technology. But the ethics for machine side of things, I think it's a different story. It's how do we want machines to be behaving mm. when they are actually making decisions relatively autonomously? Is there a way for them to guide their behavior using principles that we think generally are good guides for moral permissibility? And there's a lot of ways that we could do this. So mm. if, if you're building a machine that performs tasks that have impacts on human health and opportunity and well-being. Uh, you could model ethical guidelines off of our own intuitive moral psychology. That's one option. Yeah. You could use, for instance, certain models from evolutionary game theory, maybe these normative ideas about how humans ought to behave in large groups. Uh, You could use as your guideline historical moral theories, like utilitarianism, Kantian ethics, natural rights theories. Uh, And so there's a lot of different places we could look for how to design moral algorithms. And what I think we need is an answer to the question of which of these sources should we be using? And if we're sort of dabbling in each of them, how should we dabble? I mean, you can't just mix and match all together. You have to have some broad framework for when are we going to be utilitarians? When are we going to appeal to intuitive moral psychology? And so I think we need to answer this big, big question of what is ethics all about? Wow. Okay.
0: So dug into quite a lot there. Um, So I think there's quite a lot to cover in, in the fact that, you know, obviously we haven't talked about any specific uh, circumstances where these things might come into play and we might want to go in one direction rather than the other. Um, is that part of your argument that there is no blanket generalisation of of any particular um, that code or of reference that we should use, ethical guidelines, it's uh, per um, circumstance basis, or or can you make a generalization that we should be doing things in a certain way?
1: Sure, so I'll jump to my, my conclusion uh, right off the bat, which is that I think there is a particular moral theory called contractarianism, especially a version developed by an American philosopher, John Rawls. Mm-hmm. And I think that that moral theory got a lot right about how to make moral decisions. Um, Now, one confusing thing here is that Rawls is sometimes known as primarily a political philosopher. Hmm. Uh, However, I think that his general framework can be turned into a theory for individual decision making as well. And the the meta-ethical assumption that I'm making in the book is that uh, moral judgments in human beings evolved for a very specific function, and that is creating cooperative behavior amongst self-interested organisms. Hmm. Uh, this is actually a relatively popular idea. It's, it's not a very controversial idea. Uh, in fact, I was at a, a meeting of the Moral Psychology Research Group last year, and I did an informal poll just asking people how many of you are inclined to agree with this thesis, and everybody except one notable holdout actually uh, agreed Mm. that that's true. Uh, But there are important consequences of this. If we agree that moral judgments evolve for a particular function, we can actually model what this function is. Sorry to stop
0: you. Is is that something that you've asked uh, evolutionary psychologists as well, that sort of um, uh, generalized poll?
1: Yeah, I mean, they're sort of a biased group. Initially, sure. they're already going to be inclined to agree that that's correct. It's funny. I was having a conversation about this with a friend of mine, an evolutionary psychologist, David Rakison, here at Carnegie Mellon. And at first he said, well, I don't think ethics exists. I don't think I don't think it's real. <laughs> sure.
0: uh,
1: and I, I said, well, that's silly. Of course, you make judgments about which actions are permissible and impermissible, mm-hmm. and you apply those to others. And he was like, well, yeah, I, I, I do. But I think that those are just... Uh, a product of this evolutionary history for cooperative behavior. And I said, well, that's funny. That's what I mean by ethics. And so he said, well, then in that case, I agree ethics exists. Right. Good.
0: It sounds like semantics then.
1: There is a lot of semantic confusion. A lot of people are inclined to say that they don't think that ethics is real or that Mm. ethics exists. However when they are pressed to make moral judgments, they'll say, well, of course, child abuse and slavery and rape and all of these kinds of things are are wrong. Mm -hmm. And I apply that judgment to other people. And the uh, immediate response to that is, well, that's ethics. That's what ethics is all about. Yeah. So the need for Developing a general framework for moral decision making is coming from the growing sophistication of autonomous systems. Uh, the most prominent of these are obviously self-driving vehicles or driverless vehicles. I know some people get angry when you call them self-driving. You say, mm. Well, you're not you're not a self-driving person. Are they self-driving cars? Let's not worry about that. Sure. But self-driving cars are the most obvious kind of technology where they're going to be making decisions that could potentially affect the safety of human beings. Uh, They're going to be making choices about which kind of humans to value over others or in what situations to swerve or accelerate and so on. But there's also other kinds of technologies, uh, autonomous weapon systems, security robots, um, and even a growing industry of medical technologies where I think machines are going to need some kind of general framework for recognizing which kinds of actions are permissible and which kinds of actions are not permissible.
0: Yeah. So we were talking about roles earlier um, and you were saying that you have this idea of con contractualization is that the phrase you're using
1: yeah yeah so academics can get a little bit wonky about their mm. jargon here um let's say there are there are two different words for this one of them is contractarianism mm-hmm. and one of them is contractualism right uh, i don't get too hung up on these distinctions i call it contractarianism and the basic idea of this theory is According to Rawls, but going back to Thomas Hobbes in the 1600s, is that an action is morally acceptable if people would agree to it from some kind of idealized bargaining position. And for Hobbes, this was a sort of anarchy state, a state of nature. Mm-hmm. For Rawls, this was an idealized situation called the original position where you don't know who you're going to be.
0: Yeah. And that's his, I think that's one of the, um, his most famous thought experiments where you're deciding uh, the way forward um, and it's usually used in political theory as, as you were saying before um, where you have a group of people and they are all starting from a unknown position and they have to agree on how to run uh, what, what rules to apply or how to run the society and then they are allotted rules or whatever it is Um, So you could be a disabled person or you could be a rich person. And before um, you knew what what the type of person you are, you have to already agree on what kind of society you want to live in, which is the, the natural or the neutral part. Right.
1: That's exactly right. And so the basic idea is in this situation of the original position, nobody would agree to, for instance, enslave all the Norwegians. Because there's some possibility that you could be Norwegian. Yeah. Uh, Nobody would agree to discriminatory policies or robbing the rights of others because it would be not in your self-interest. So Rawls and other contractarians assume that human beings are fundamentally self-interested. And in order to come together and live in groups, we need to apply this thought experiment to sort of cover up some parts of our self-interest while leaving others intact now the beautiful thing about the original position is that it actually tells you which things to cover up and which things to not cover up and according to Rawls, you cover up the things that are particular to you that distinguish you from other people so your height your weight your gender Mm -hmm. your religion and so on but you leave Uncovered certain shared characteristics that all human beings have. Perhaps general facts about humans like we all need sleep and food and friendship and so on. Um, And also psychological characteristics like humans respond well to incentives. Mm. So these are the kinds of things that everybody has access to in the original position. And this is important in terms of a moral theory because it creates a division between what Rawls calls primary goods and secondary goods. So secondary goods are the kinds of things that some people like, but other people don't necessarily care about, like mm. television and coffee and whatever. Coffee? No, um, surely that's a <laughs> primary <you> concern. Know, <laughs> it's funny. I had a friend of mine in graduate school who, who was very suspicious of me because I never drank coffee. He said, you're, you're <laughs> too suspicious. I, I think you're a spy of some yeah, kind. Yeah,
0: definitely not a professor.
1: That's right. Um, on the other hand, primary goods are the kinds of things that all human beings care about. And this is important for a moral theory because it turns out the kinds of things we intuitively judge be moral, morally wrong, like murder and kidnapping and abuse, usually have to do with some kind of damage to primary goods, the kinds of things that all human beings care about and value. And so that's... I would say the, the basic idea of Rawls's, uh, well, hmm. I don't want to call it a thought experiment. You know, use that term, and that's yes. a bit of a pet, yeah. pet peeve of mine. Uh, Rawls never actually uses the term thought experiment. I, I like to think of it as an abstraction, an abstraction from a particular situation of self-interested humans coming together in groups. And trying to find some kind of cooperative solution to this. And in addition, I want to talk about applying this theory to individual decision making, not necessarily policy, but how should people actually move around and act in the world? And one way of doing this is to say that I'm going to maximize the worst off outcomes of every kind of distribution of primary goods in my behavior. Um, This is a rule that Rawls called the Maximin Principle. uh, And it also has a history in game theory. That's Mm -hmm. where he got the idea from. So Rawls thinks that from the original position, all self-interested people will act to make the worst person as best off as possible. And in a political sense, this is relatively clear what it means. It means that we should enact policies that make the poorest people uh, best off before we do things to benefit the rich. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that's correct, but that's not what I'm talking about necessarily. What I mean is if you are acting in a way that you can predict the effects of your actions on the primary goods of other people around you, For instance, you have to make decisions about other people's health and their opportunity and their property. You can actually, if you could assign numerical values to each of those payoffs, you could run this Maximin principle as a kind of utility function over Mm -hmm. your actions. And then essentially try to perform the action that makes the worst person in your environment as best off as possible. So
0: um, I've got a lot of questions here. There's there's yes. two, two things. So there's three things there that um, stick out. The, the first is the the uh, essence of uh, this, the maximin um, game theory type application, where you're saying that you're trying to, like you said, um, maximize the best benefit for the worst off. Um, but then you're talking about uh, assigning um, numerical values, and then running you know knowing the outcomes and in my experience there's very few domains within um, the technical fields that one you might categorically know the outcomes of any particular behavior um, but also having to distill some sort of numerical value is probably problematic as well Um, do you have any kind of thing to say about those specific elements and how they work out in maybe a specific example
1: yes yes i do so you are hitting on all the right objections here i'm making a lot of objection (laughs) highly highly objectionable claims yes now a lot of these claims i'm making are similar to a sort of cousin moral theory called utilitarianism Mm. Uh, the more famous more popular wealthier cousin and utilitarianism is famous for saying we have to calculate the total pleasures and pains of all of our actions and simply run a maximization function over those effects. Now in the approach that I'm advocating, you are also calculating numerical values of the effects of your actions. Uh, but you are running a different kind of function, not a maximization function, but a max-min function. We can get to that in a minute. Mm-hmm. The objection that you raised is, well, how can we possibly attach numerical values to these outcomes? Uh, I agree that it's problematic, but all important problems are problematic. All difficult, important challenges are problematic. Mm. That doesn't mean it's impossible, necessarily. It just means it's very, very, very hard. However, I think there are ways of doing this. And utilitarians for the last 200 years have really led the charge on this, trying to develop, here's some possible way to attach numbers to all of the effects of our actions. Now, the utilitarians will usually say, there has to be a way of doing this or else we just can't do ethics. And I generally agree with the utilitarians here. However, I think for contractarians, it is easier to do this because we're not calculating happiness and suffering. Instead, we are calculating the distribution of primary goods, namely health, opportunity, and material resources. And by that, I mean essential resources for Mm. survival. So it's really hard to calculate pleasures and pains, but it's easy for me to calculate how much money you have in your bank account and how much money it takes for a normal human being in your environment to survive. Um, It's really hard for me to calculate the pleasure you get from watching a movie or reading a book, but it's easy for me to calculate, let's say, your health and survival probability. Well, I shouldn't say easy, but it's easier. Mm. And it's certainly something that insurance companies and governments have been doing for a long time. That's their business. They have to attach numerical values to people's survival probabilities and health likelihoods. And so that's all I'm saying is that in this moral theory, we have to do something that insurance companies have been doing for a long time, which is saying, if you do X, here's the impact on your health. If I do X to you, what is the loss in likelihood of health and survival to you?
0: Awesome. Um, So in in the book, or just generally, do you have a prime example of how this could be applied um, within robotics?
1: Yes, I do. So uh, the three main areas that I talk about are the application to autonomous vehicles, Mm -hmm. autonomous weapon systems, and what are sometimes called care bots, or. Uh, autonomous medical technology yeah and so in each of these domains it's important I think for a machine to actually predict what the outcomes of its actions are going to be on the primary goods of human beings so for instance in driverless vehicles it's quite straightforward what the primary good affected by the machine's behavior is namely survival and health and so if it's possible to actually develop a kind of metric for in this kind of collision, here is the impact or health benefit or health loss to mm. the people in this vehicle, the pedestrians here, the cyclists, then we could run a kind of maximen utility function over that data. Now, once again, that is incredibly difficult. And a lot of the engineers that I've talked to who are working on these kinds of technologies say, well, why would you do this? Why wouldn't you just design the machine to avoid collisions entirely? Yeah. And my response is, that would be lovely. If it's possible to design an autonomous vehicle such that it never gets in collisions and never has to evaluate different paths that could get in collisions, then ethics does not have any role to play here. Mm -hmm. That's fine. However, a lot of other people working on this technology, like for instance Noah Goodall, uh, and well, he's not working on the technology, but he's at the uh, the works for the government of Virginia, and uh, he's written a lot about the sort of pie in the sky attitude that a lot of engineers have about autonomous vehicles, and he's he's argued that any kind of technology that evaluates paths. For a vehicle is going to have to evaluate collisions along those paths Uh, and a number of colleagues of mine have also argued for this as well Uh, Alex London and and David Danks here at Carnegie Mellon have argued the same thing that if you are driving around on the street you must be evaluating collisions and do we want an autonomous vehicle to be evaluating every collision equally, to be evaluating collision with a pedestrian and a collision with a wall equally? And I mm-hmm. think the obvious answer is no, those shouldn't be evaluated equally because they're not equal. And so the response to the engineers who say this is silly is, well, it's a little silly, but what you're doing is even sillier.
0: <laughs> I think that fascinating that because it seems so obvious to me and hopefully some of the uh, listeners of this podcast that you may need some sort of thought process that goes into evaluating like you say like in these circumstances if there's going to be um, a decision to go into um, some sort of collision state that you might evaluate maybe the best way of entering that state or Doing some sort of processing, which we might say is an ethical dilemma. Um, there's lots of stuff in the news about these sorts of cars that can kill you and things like this. Um I try not to I try to stay stay away from those things, but it's um essentially making those decisions in the physical world what is going to be the best outcome for this you know specific, issue problem that that we're entering into and with cars that's obviously um, you know crashing into pedestrians or cyclists or walls or just the myriad of things that exist in the real world Um, the myriad of things that these systems can't necessarily pick on quite yet um, you get confused by there are um, engineering issues there are um, tires that get blown out there are just so many things that could go wrong it seems like just ridiculous that um, any engineer would uh, have an issue with what you're saying um, that there should be some sort of uh, evaluative process and um, so that's fascinating that you've come across these people hopefully that won't continue to be the case um, but obviously it's still a hard problem and still something to be uh, rectified
1: yeah i agree and it seems silly but as far as i'm aware of this is sort of the official position over the last year and a half of almost all the major car companies that are developing autonomous vehicles mm. when you ask them well, what are the cars going to do when they have to make these kinds of decisions about which people, which paths to prioritize? Their official line now is, well, our goal is to avoid all collisions. And that's just impossible. If you are moving around at greater than one kilometer per hour, then you are going to have to make decisions about which paths are better than others. Granted,
0: yes, agree. So, what you're saying is the possible um, solution to this predicament is that we have some sort of Rawlsian um, contractualized implementation of game theory built into these systems, which has some sort of cost um, efficient that is worked in depending on the circumstance or the different, um, how you're putting it, the primary. Um, resources, was it? Mm-hmm. Yep. Primary goods or primary resources. Primary yes. goods, yep. And all this comes together to create an algorithm which is working within the robot or the car or the, um, to then produce a decision or produce a reaction or path or whatever it is.
1: That's right. And one assumption that I am making is that moral constraints are what could be called hard constraints. That they don't supersede other kinds of goals the system might have. Uh, in other words, if you are going to be resulting in some kind of harm uh, measured in loss of health, loss of opportunity, mm-hmm. loss of essential resources, uh, that that completely supersedes any other kinds of goals that the system might have.
0: Right. So it's some sort of hierarchy based on these are the the primary um, issues and then you have maybe something which is more specific to the circumstance or to do with the manufacturer underneath that?
1: That's right. So you could imagine within these kinds of moral constraints, you could have any kind of particular goals that the system might have. So if you have an autonomous uh, machine that is buying you groceries at the local supermarket, Obviously, it has certain goals to maximize the groceries that you want, um, but within those constraints, it also has certain moral directives, mm-hmm. namely, uh, don't take these from other shoppers, don't run over people in the process, and so on.
0: Yeah. Um, so I think the next obvious question is: is how do we how do we produce these um, these algorithms, or how do we put the numbers into the systems, and um, how do we agree on these things? Is this a, sort of a mathematical um, inevitability that you know you, these things can only come out um, of the dice in one way? Or can we all have a say on how these things play out?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I think there are two parts to this. One of them is practical and one of them is theoretical. Mm-hmm. So on the practical side, you are asking, how do we actually turn effects into numbers and run this decision procedure over those numbers? Now, that's a practical question, and it is very, very difficult. I think there are ways of doing this with a large enough database. Um, And it's the same kind of thing, as I said, that car companies, insurance companies, other kinds of industries have been doing for a Mm -hmm. while now. Um, It's very difficult to say, for instance, if you get into a collision at this angle, at this speed, Uh, What is the impact on your health? But with a large enough database of injuries and fatalities in car collisions, it is possible to make a pretty reliable estimate about your loss of health in this kind of collision. And so I could reliably say with some margin of error, if you swerve into this group of people, here are the likely losses to that group in terms of health. If you swerve into this wall here, here are the likely losses to the people in the car in terms Mm -hmm. of their health. That's a massive data challenge. But I think it's something that's possible. And if it's a moral imperative, it's something we need to be devoting research to. Are car companies actually doing this research? The answer is, I don't know. I hope so. Mm. I hope so. I have not yet been able to talk to a lot of the people working in the autonomous vehicle industry. I would like to, if they're listening to this, please get in touch with me. Um, What my job is really to say is, if we are going to design a morally acceptable autonomous vehicle, here's the kinds of things it has to be capable of doing. And if it's not capable of doing this, I think that we should say, let's slow down or even halt our work on autonomous technology.
0: Mm, Yeah. I think, um, like you said, we do have some data and we can start experimenting with it. I'm sure that some of those companies are are doing that at the moment. Um, We spoke to one of those companies um, on our very second episode. So go check that out. Um, Nick Reed from TRL. Um, and they're running some very small um, pods, if you like, in in various cities in England. And I don't know how much data they're they're putting into these things, uh, and that would be really interesting to find out. But it's also one of those things which I can imagine we can use historical data, but they may not have the types of uh, physical data that you might get recorded on on board these cars. So you might have to maybe do some dummy tests. You know those traditional dummy tests when you're testing cars out do some of that and maybe some simulations as well obviously we've got very um, amazing graphics cards which we can do lots of different um, number crunching on at the moment and we could run some simulations and maybe that will be built in as well but i guess all these things come into hopefully making the best models for uh, making the best decisions but um right
1: now the if Uh, I could also get back to the theoretical side Mm. of the question that you asked. So on the theoretical side, you were asking, okay, assuming that we can do all of this, why should we be using, say, this Maximin decision procedure instead of the utilitarian decision procedure, which is just a maximization function, uh, saying let's try to create the most or the highest sum of overall health or overall opportunity or overall essential resources. Uh, you could imagine other kinds of decision procedures that actually distinguish between certain agents, like the agent in the vehicle, the user, him or herself, and say something like, well, let's protect the driver, protect the passengers, protect the user, mm-hmm. and all, everything else is simply an unfortunate side effect. Uh, You could imagine uh, other kinds of decision procedures that actually incorporate intentions into their decision procedures and say, well, what was the goal of our system initially? It was to get from point A to point B and any kind of deviation from that path is going to be morally wrong. So this is a moral theory developed by the philosopher Immanuel Kant. Hmm. And I sometimes think about a Kantian vehicle as one that would simply try to decelerate. I know, this sounds yeah, see, funny, it sounds but... quite extreme, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I would put a little wig on it and have it <laughs> meander around Konigsberg. But the Kantian vehicle would essentially just try to decelerate as much as possible, but never swerve outside of its original path to avoid an obstacle. Mm-hmm. Because that would be taking a new action In the calculation of trying to create more overall happiness, less overall harm. However, Kant says it's okay to do nothing, it's okay to stop your actions, it's never okay to take new actions knowing that it's going to create some harm. Right. And you could imagine some vehicles actually programmed to do this. Uh, So the theoretical question is which of these theories should we be using to program our decision procedure? and that goes back to this big question i said at the beginning of ethics which is what is ethics all about what are moral theories for how do we evaluate the difference between utilitarianism contractarianism kantian ethics now you might say well philosophers have been debating this for hundreds and thousands of years mm, true. and that's true but that doesn't mean there's not a correct answer and I like to say that in mathematics and computer science a lot of people have been debating some of these issues for a long, long time. That doesn't mean there's not a correct answer to it. And so I think the correct answer actually has been coming from the progress in evolutionary game theory and the recognition that moral judgments evolved for this particular function. Mm -hmm. If we could actually step outside of our moral psychology and look at this function formally, which I think evolutionary game theorists have been doing, we can say, which of these theories is best at actually accomplishing this function, namely producing cooperative behavior? And my answer is, I think contractarianism is best, and I have arguments for that.
0: Great. Um, Is the next step working with um, some practical applications and, and running some experiments?
1: Yes, there are lots of next steps to this. I like to think of this book as just a opening salvo, my sort of manifesto. Here's what ethics for robots should look like if we are going to design them. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I'd like to start getting involved with, as you said, some simulations, some uh, attempts to look at what would, say, a Kantian vehicle, a utilitarian vehicle, um, a contractarian vehicle look like in the world. Um, there's been some efforts to do this. A philosopher here in the US, uh, Nick Evans, just got a, an NSF grant from our government to look at that. And I'm hoping to uh, work with their group and some other groups to uh, really push these projects along. Because I think that's where the, um, the results are going to come from, is by Designing real machines and simulations mm-hmm. that perform according to our theoretical claims about how they should perform.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I, I have this um, fun idea that when you've hit across this solution, that we have this kind of service, which is called, you know, it's an API for ethics, and you just plug yourself in. That's um, <laughs> pretty ridiculous, and um, it would be some sort of mad. A uh, huge database in the cloud that every circumstance for any application was held
1: there, and you could just query it. Um, I'm guessing. I mean, that's not. <laughs> Is that I not... don't think that's. I don't think that's insane. No. I don't think that's insane. In Good. fact, if you imagine a sort of robotic housekeeper, mm-hmm. you know, a sort of Rosie the robot from the old Jetsons cartoon. I don't know if that yes. reference yeah, makes yeah, any yeah. sense to you at yeah. all. Imagine Rosie the robot going around the house doing laundry, cooking food. Rosie the robot is going to have to know a lot about what sorts of behavior produces harm to human beings. Mm. Rosie's going to have to know not to poison you with certain chemicals, um, not to stab you while she's making the dinner, um, not to set fire to the house or set fire to you, not to drown you and so Mm -hmm. on. Um, now, this might sound simple, but I think it's actually a lot more complicated than we think. And this, this database you're talking about uh, of which kinds of actions create losses in primary goods and how much those losses are, I think that's a good idea. Great. So
0: um, if anyone's listening and has some investment money that they've got burning in their pocket, just let me know and we can have a chat. Um, So is there anything – we're getting towards the end now. Um, Is there anything else you want to uh, touch on before we go into our last question?
1: That we've been talking a lot about the application of this um, discussion to autonomous vehicles – But an area that I think is emerging where not a lot of people have been talking about ethics is um, autonomous medical robots, machines that might be taking care of the sick and the elderly, where it is important to actually have some kind of framework for which treatments are acceptable, which treatments are not acceptable. Imagine that a patient is dying, you could have an autonomous care bot apply Uh, CPR, apply the use of defibrillators, when and under what circumstances should these treatments be applied? Um, Once again, you would need some sort of database for figuring out which treatments are going to result in loss and gain of health and safety. Mm -hmm. Uh, In addition, an important component that there's not usually a lot of discussion of is consent. And there needs to be a role for consent, especially in its application to medical technology. Um, So here's a fun case, and by fun I mean agonizing and terrible. Uh, Imagine that there's a patient who desperate, who is choking and needs a tracheotomy uh, instantly, Uh, and the autonomous uh, care bot. Uh, is about to apply the tracheotomy and the patient says, no, I don't want that. I don't want anything in my throat. Please, please, I don't want it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Should this robot respect the consent of the patient, the wishes, and allow the patient to die or perform the tracheotomy? Oh, you're asking me.
0: Um, Yeah, that's not rhetorical.
1: Okay, cool. Uh, So I think if I was
0: um, abstracting myself from my personal uh, autonomy, I would say surely as a human race we want to preserve and continue and in most circumstances that is the correct decision but I guess if you have a strong religious views or maybe you're in a lot of pain and um, you decided that this is the time and you didn't want to I mean all sorts of various circumstances um, then your choice is your choice but um, I feel like that would be Less, there would be less circumstances when then that would be the case, and I guess in that circumstance, do we blanket say that no one is allowed to say no in that circumstances? um It's a very difficult. Uh, when we're working with statistics like this, it's very difficult to say no in these fringe cases. Do it, but in these other cases, don't do it. So I think you can get yourselves. Um, you know tied up in knots trying to to go through all this sort of thing um so that's a very interesting
1: issue yeah but the problem is a decision needs to be made and it needs to be made right now and there's either you perform the tracheotomy or you don't Mm -hmm. and this is why a framework for decision making is so essential you need it you and you mentioned say you need to know about the religious concerns or the other kinds of values of the person that's data that this carebot would need to be programmed with Yeah. If it's relevant. Mm -hmm. And it's not obvious that it is. And so that's why we need some kind of discussion for what kinds of data is relevant. There is some data that I think should not be relevant, like, for instance, data about the ethnicity Mm -hmm. and the political attitudes of the people in the environment. Um, There's this uh, fun simulation you could play around with called the Moral Machine Game uh, that the MIT Media Lab developed. I don't know if you've played that or not. I have
0: indeed. Yes.
1: Yeah, uh, I have some serious objections yeah, to that, so do I. <laughs> um, and, and one of them is simply that the most of the information is morally irrelevant. It shouldn't yeah. be relevant whether the person is male or female, fat or thin, unemployed or employed. And this is another important issue in designing moral machines. What kinds of information is or isn't morally relevant? Um, people are, as we know, racist and sexist and homophobic. Um, Should we incorporate these biases into a machine? Well, if we use human moral judgments as our template, they're going to be carried over. However, I think that would be a disaster. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think that comes back to a data issue as well. I mean, if you're working with a lot of historical data, then there are going to be things that come through that data. And it might not be that, you know, we're all blanket racist, but it might be something else. Um, And I think that's quite interesting to... Um, pull out as well. That, um, there's a lot of news in the AI world about um, good and bad data and how you should use the data that you have um, and make sure that it's appropriate for your domain as well. Um, hmm, problematic. <laughs>
1: yeah, one of my favorite examples of consent in, in the book and in the world are tattoo artists. Uh, Now, I am not aware of any robotic tattoo artists, but it's the kind of thing that I could imagine happening relatively soon. Uh, It's the kind of thing that I imagine robots would be better at performing Mm. than humans. And you could imagine a sort of let's just call it automatic tattoo parlor, where you go in, you submit your design, and it tattoos you.
0: I, I am astonished that that is not already a thing, surely. Uh, that sounds, um, like, right, like you said, um, obvious.
1: Yeah, it does. And so I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't be shocked if this kind of, kind of thing emerged. Now imagine somebody goes into a, an automatic, let's call it a uh, tattoo parlor, and says, I want a swastika tattooed on my face, I want a giant spider web on my face, something like this. Um, Once again, this is the kind of thing that designing this machine requires, is are there any restrictions to what a patient can or can't consent to? In the contractarian framework I'm using, consent actually overrides the distribution of primary goods because primary goods are originally a measurement of preferences. Now, this produces all sorts of crazy predictions. Um, But I've been teaching ethics long enough to know that no consistent set of moral principles is going to give you everything you like. And eventually, you're going to get some crazy predictions. And my theory produces some crazy ones just like every other.
0: Okay, well, you can't tantalize people and then not give some examples.
1: (laughs) Well, one of them is just the one I was mentioning, which is that if you go into a tattoo artist and you uh, request a swastika tattooed on your face from your robotic tattoo artist, uh, then the tattoo artist might actually deliver some competence tests, Mm -hmm. um, saying something like, do you understand what this is, what its meaning is? Uh, Maybe even taking some blood to do a diagnosis of your intoxication levels at the moment. Mm -hmm. And if all of that checks out, then the answer should be get in the chair. Let's do it. Cool. Uh, Similarly, in autonomous vehicles, if you are maximizing the health of the worst off person, then you produce some really weird scenarios where it turns out it's better to swerve into a crowd and give 50 people a broken leg than, to swerve into a single person and give one person two broken legs
0: wow, I guess um, uh, I feel like that could make sense i don 't have any broken legs, so i couldn 't really um speak from experience, but um, this is the sort of thing which um, as moral philosophers, we have to deal with um, and communicating this stuff to developers and um, entrepreneurs and uh, public people that's the challenge now I think I think your book is a great start at um, having this conversation and having a a, trying to make an applicable answer to what might be interesting to look at experimentally hopefully that evolves into something practical that we can start rolling out in, in factories and stuff like that but it's still um, very much at the, the beginning of the coalface of, of trying to make all this stuff work and having to deal with these really interesting questions of, you know, what's
1: best in this bad
0: scenario, you know.
1: I agree. And I agree that it's just the beginning of this kind of work. I, I see the, my book is sort of advocating for people to start getting involved in this and introducing some of these problems. Um, I'll just add really quickly, I think that that prediction i mentioned is is crazy and i feel like oh i just don't agree with that Mm. but unfortunately as a moral philosopher uh, my feelings don't matter at all Um, and my intuitions are useful in the sense that they have evolved for a particular function but so have our physical intuitions and those sometimes are incorrect as well and so i i want to pay attention to my feelings and intuitions but learn to if it turns out the best theory I have contradicts them, say, well, I need to just go with the theory.
0: Mm -hmm. Great. So we're getting to the final question now, uh, Derek. So thanks very much for your time. We usually ask people what AI is at the beginning. So if you could give us a super sharp, short definition, that'd be awesome. Um, But what I'd really like to know is what excites you and what scares you about um, AI and the use of this autonomous uh, software in the
1: future? Good. And... So, some people ask me why I called my book Ethics for Robots rather than Ethics for AI. And I define robots and AI a little differently. This might be uh, specific to me. But the way that I define these terms is I think about uh, robots and AI both as autonomous systems, meaning that they can perform complex tasks with minimal human supervision. Um, But robots, I usually think about as embodied, moving around in the world, Mm -hmm. whereas AI doesn't necessarily have to be embodied. Um, In addition, I think about AI as performing a more general category of tasks, whereas robots are usually focused on one specific kind of task, like driving or killing people or having sex with lonely humans. And so that's the kind of distinction that I make between AI and robots. Um, now the question of what is a I, uh, it's funny. I taught a seminar in the spring called ethics for artificial Mm -hmm. intelligence. And we spent the first week talking about this, uh, and we realized that in order to talk about artificial intelligence, you have to get into the question of what is intelligence. And then you just dive into the rabbit hole of philosophy of mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, again, I don't think this is an impossible question to answer. I think it's just very, very, very difficult. Um, I usually think about intelligence as the ability to integrate a large amount of diverse information to produce a decision over that information. Um, and so intelligence is a spectrum from, you might say, very simple forms of intelligence to complex kinds of intelligence. Is there an upper bound on that spectrum of intelligence? I don't know, perhaps mm-hmm. not. Yep. Now, in, in the aspect of the question, What am I, you asked, excited about in terms of AI? What am I worried about? Um, I don't know if I would classify myself as what's sometimes called an AI alarmist. Uh, I've been talking a lot in in my classes about the arguments from, say, Sam Harris and Nick Bostrom, Mm -hmm. and even it's catching on to Elon Musk now a little bit, um, some skeptics in the community have raised their counter arguments say Gary Marcus and Steve Pinker uh, Gary Marcus is actually a former professor of mine and so I I'm a little bit uh, inclined to find his arguments more persuasive mm-hmm. uh, just because of my own uh, unfortunate human foibles but I, I, I agree with both Pinker and Marcus that Uh, we do not have to worry anytime soon about AI suddenly wiping out the whole human race, Um, that the the news of the death of humanity has been greatly exaggerated. However, I do agree with Harris and Bostrom that if we're talking about intelligence as a spectrum, Mm -hmm. that it is quite plausible that eventually AI will become, as Bostrom calls it, super intelligent, Uh, and develop its own goals that are not necessarily mm, recognizable to us. Now, one, one way that I would diverge from them is that if there are facts about which actions are permissible and not permissible, which I think there are, any super intelligent AI would actually be better than we are at understanding and recognizing those facts. And perhaps the AI system, if it were super intelligent, would actually be better than we are, uh, morally speaking. Hmm. Um, In fact, if you think about most of human history, imagine AI were developed 100 years ago or 200 years ago, and it's looking at um, the society of slaveholding, you know, racist nationalists, and it just says, this is awful. You're all terrible people. Um, I imagine AI sort of emerging now and saying, well, look at the way you're traveling, look at the way you're eating, look at the way you are spending your money, um, and just being very, very, let's just call it disappointed in mm-hmm. humanity. Um, I don't know if AI would take steps to actually correct our behavior, um, but if it were following this MaxiMEN procedure, um, the steps that it took to, for instance, force us to stop eating meat in factory farms and stop driving fossil fuel vehicles and so on uh, would be let's just call them gentle steps that don't necessarily uh, require any any violence um, but might prohibit people from doing a lot of things they want to do and that's Mm -hmm. also just what ethics is all about you don't always get what you want
0: yeah or if you don't get what you want, then you have to dream up some different ethical,
1: you know, um, theory to then counter argument. Yeah. Um, right. So that's if there's if there's <laughs> no facts about ethics. If if there's no fact about which actions are right and wrong. Yes. Yeah. Then then you could just do whatever you want. Yep. But if there's not, then I don't get to you know, eat a bunch of human burgers and drive around in my my fuel-burning Hummer all day long, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, Um, which is, you know, where I want to be, obviously. (laughs) Cool, well, thank you very much for that, Derek. Um, I'll see you in your um, Hummer um, at the burger lot soon. Um, Thanks very much for your time. If anyone would like to uh, follow you, find out about your book, uh, read your articles, how can they do that?
1: Uh, I have a Twitter handle that I've started up called at ethics for robots and I also have just started making a set of YouTube videos to go along with the book but I have not put them up yet. I should put them up this week and they will be searchable online.
0: Yeah, and the book's called The Ethics for Robots, How to Design a Moral Algorithm. And thanks very much for your time.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Awesome, thanks.